0: Hello, today in the Loopcast, I have Amanda Rogers, and we are discussing counterterrorism law, counter and anti-terrorism law. So the conceptualization, the application, even kind of the definition, what is terrorism? You know, how does that play into how we create laws, how we prosecute them, and how we sort of understand them. The main reason, there's kind of two threads going into this conversation for us. One is Amanda is that rare sort of academic analyst, whatever noun you want to use, who is kind of, oh, sorry, who, who has kind of sat between not only extremism in the Middle East and sort of that field, but also the last time she was on the show, we discussed Tom Metzger at length, a notorious white supremacist, white nationalist. So I couldn't think of somebody better to sit here and kind of give us, kind of walk us through that critical aspect of counterterrorism law. The second thread is, as you know, we have gone through three distinct periods, right? So 9-11, ISIS, DV, so domestic violence, extremism, or whatever they call it, whatever the, the, the catch-all for white, white supremacist and white nationalist violence. And so the big question here was, you know, how is that reflected into the law? How is that reflected into prosecutions? How is that reflected into discourse? So with all that being said, please welcome my guest, Amanda Rogers. How's it going?
1: It's, it's going. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me. And especially on this topic, because, you know, I love to pop off and uh, about <laughs> my many, many opinions on terrorism, you know, as a category and the terrorism discourse at large. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, did you want to kick off with that that first yeah. inquiry i guess into the the juridical regimes that instantiate the category of terrorism or the definitions
0: well yeah that I mean that is like at its core for me, it's like where do you start because like, I, I started saying, like, when, when I started writing the questions for the show, I was like, okay, we'll start with the 1-6 prosecutions. And I said, no, 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 that's too contemporary. We'll go with ISIS and the, the debates around technology and freedom of speech. And I said, no, 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 we'll go to nine eleven. right? We'll do Gitmo, the Patriot Act, authorized to use military force.
1: Can and I ask that- you, just, just out of curiosity, why why was contemporary, you know, contemporary terrorism, quote unquote- case you know examples why were those off the table for you just out of curiosity
0: I mean it wasn't off the table I just I kept on digging and I kept on hitting as, as I went further back in time I would hit more veins right so after before 9 it was the Oklahoma City bombing and then you'd go back further and it's the CSA case and then you go back further and then I, I just found myself like rabbit holing so much that I went back to
1: all the way to the Russian anarchists and you know the Haymarket like oh, no, all no, that no. stuff.
0: No, or even the... worse. I, I went all the way back to the original Klan law of 1877.
1: <laughs> well, you can even go back to like I mean, there there are arguments about you know the I think it, what what is it the the mass suicide at Masada I think I can't recall specifically so you might actually have to edit this out because I can't remember what century I'm talking. But so were you was your approach basically looking into the the word terrorism itself and the way that it's been wielded in prosecutions historically?
0: Yeah, basically, like, yeah, so like, the the real core of this conversation was kind of I've been vibing on reconstruction history. And
1: uh-huh. um, excellent. Yeah. Excellent.
0: And, and, and one of the one of the things is like, when you listen to Eric Foner's lectures about the tail end of reconstruction about Ulysses Grant going after the clan, like he gives this huge historical explanation is like, what you really can call this, if you were to kind of put a modern description, is that, it's terrorism, right? Grant is going, he's creating the DOJ, he's creating these laws, and they're going after terrorists, the clan. And it, it, it just like it just hey, hold a, on, hold on. Oh, I'm
1: gonna stop for a second because okay. I mean, I I certainly have absolutely no sympathy whatsoever for the clan, neither historical nor present in any of its incarnations or of you know, many, many, many permutations into factions. However, I would I would ask you just as a a jumping off point why do we take it as self-evident that this group of people qualifies as quote-unquote terrorists what are the defining features that you are taking for granted when you make that distinction
0: oh wow political violence right so
1: okay political violence is the definition that you're using right
0: right so it's not like it's, it's, it's violence with a political goal, right? It's to, the, the original Klan was to, uh, you know, weaken the political position of, of unionists and reconstruction type politicians, of making sure black people couldn't vote and scare them off from voting. So in, in that sense, it's the end goal is political. Whereas okay. it, it's not just random homicide. It's not a serial murder. I'm gonna, I'm
1: gonna oh, jump in go on you again. Because basically, I mean, I'm about to just start spewing like I do. Right. But when we talk about like terrorists per se, as those who are engaging in political violence for some expected political outcome, right, then where is the distinction between state terrorism and sub-state terrorism? And how does that play out in juridical regimes, both internationally and domestic? Once you begin to really think about those categories and examine every single thing that we take for granted when we use a derivation of terror, terrorism, terrorists, right? Basically, you go down rabbit holes of just hating everything and wanting to light yourself on fire. And there's a really good reason for that, I would say. So- I, I think the first thing that, that I want to start off talking about in reference to your first question there, where do we start, right, is that when someone is using the word terrorism in reference to the law, right, this is born out of a distinction, basically, between international law and domestic law, because there's, there's this hilarious, I mean, it shouldn't be funny, but I mean, you, you do know that, even the FBI's definition of domestic terrorism, for example, is a definitional statute, not a charging statute. Okay? Meaning that in the words of the FBI, I have it in front of me, I can just, let me pull this out. All right. Each of the FBI's threat categories, described in further detail below, uses the words, quote, violent extremism, because the underlying ideology itself and the advocacy of such beliefs is not prohibited by U.S. law. So as a starting point, I think we need to examine the distinction between domestic law and international law as it applies to criminal political violence, right? And fundamentally, I would like to engage in a thought exercise. And I know that this provokes people, and that's completely fine, because I think that you know we have a duty to be provocative when we're dealing with some subjects like this, you know? So I would like to pretend that there is a possibility that we could eradicate the usage of this word altogether from the academic to the juridical. And I say that because, you know, once you take the word terrorism out of the equation, you're forced to start pinning down aspects of what gets taken for granted as a component. Does that make sense at all? Like, you know you would have to ask yourself if we're talking about just actors who are engaged in violence for a political outcome right that in involves you know targeting civilians, coercing civilians to change their behavior in some sort of way, then don't sanctions count as terrorism engaged in by the state, including this state? Wouldn't that qualify? I mean, really, what I'm getting at is when we start taking apart the category of terrorism. The way that it's defined in juridical regimes internationally and domestically is that you know it's it's very, very flexible, plastic, inherently subject to considerable abuse, right? And a different set of assumptions and rights and privileges apply to those who are labeled as terrorists, right? And I I wanna point out for the record, too, that you know, the US criminal code, the FBI FEMA DOD. All, all the different American basically law enforcement jurisdictions define terrorism differently, both on a domestic level and on an international level. So one question that we absolutely have to foreground is if within the United States itself, none of our law enforcement agencies can define this quote unquote crime that's not really a crime domestically the same way, you know, what, what does that say about the juridical system? You know, that's a problem. And so I would like to propose, A, that people think about eradicating this, this word from, from usage. I know that that's not possible, but I want to push us to think about that possibility because the ramifications, I think, open up a really interesting discussion on perhaps an unexpected topic. Because to me, you know, I I used to say, that I can't stand the word terrorism because it's so meaningless, right? One of the activities that I would have students do on the first day of a a critical security studies class is I would would put them in small groups and I would have them define terrorism and define extremism. And, you know, basically I would have them argue until they were absolutely certain they had defined it correctly. And then I would tell them they were completely wrong and break them up and put them in new groups and do this for an hour, over and over and over again, you know, until they were so frustrated that then we started talking about all of those assumptions, right? Because you have to really drill into it to, to break these taken for granted apart. So I used to say that the issue with the word terrorism, whether it's being, you know, applied by the legal system or, you know, in a, a political debate as a partisan weapon, I used to say that the problem is the meaninglessness of, of the word, but I've kind of done a 180 on that, particularly in light of January 6th, which we can get into later. And what I mean specifically is that terrorism as a category, legally speaking, politically speaking, et cetera, is profoundly dangerous, both because the term itself is you know, vapid, I, I will want to say, but I don't think that that's necessarily accurate enough. It is inherently meaningless on one hand. It's a, a moving target. And on the other hand, it's, it's fundamentally a moral judgment about the legitimacy of political violence, right? So instead of engaging in a discussion of, of how do we define terrorism, which is every single conference or discussion that you ever have about this topic, it's useless, basically. I think, I think Lisa Samnitsky talks about this in one of her articles that, that, you know, it's been referred to as the Bermuda Triangle topic that you just get lost in this endless swarm of basically intellectual masturbation about trying to come up with the parameters of a category that cannot be defined at a domestic level across all law enforcement. You know, the United Nations has issued resolutions about the lack of consensus of, you know, a definition for the term. So it's overcharged and really powerful because of that and the moral implications of who's applying it. And it's also meaningless at the same time. And that makes it a very effective weapon, but it doesn't tell you anything analytically useful about what you're what you're trying to describe. And when I when I teach classes on basically critical approaches to the the quote unquote war on terror or you know the forever war, I would tell my students on the first day, you know, the war on terror tells us much more about us than it tells us about them. So it's far more useful when we talk about terrorism. To analyze not the phenomenon as such through a definition that we are assuming exists, but instead look at what it is being applied to, by whom, to whom it applies, and always ask, what are the whys? Okay, what are the whys and how do those shift? So yeah, I mean, to go back to an example, right, Why, why would sanctions not qualify in some American international law? Because that's that's just foreign policy, right? But it does meet the definition that you just held up for the the clan. It's just on a state level, correct?
0: Yeah, I can I can see where you're coming from with that. Yeah, huh?
1: Okay, so there's there's another element to this that I think people should stop and consider, and it has everything to do with the legal categories and the idea of a juridical regime that instantiates. The crime of terrorism and the category of terrorist actor, right? And what I'm about to say might sound kind of loopy, appropriately enough, but bear with me. Essentially, you know, I, I would argue that terrorism isn't always has been a citizenship claim. And that is because it is rooted in an imperial history and has been since actually, you know, before the, the foundation of the United States. And we can talk more about why that is, but just to briefly encapsulate it for you, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that they're under American laws defined by the FBI, for example, that violent extremism ideology, however that is defined, which is lacking in this definition, go figure, you know, it's, it's protected under American law. It's not itself a crime, right? However, different laws apply internationally but if we buy into that bifurcation of a legal system with specific categories of violations, you know, internationally versus domestically, we run into a big problem if we are well versed in american history. And what i mean by that is this is not a post-colonial nation. it's not a post-colonial nation and it is an empire. okay? how do we have guantanamo bay? for example.
0: right. oh my gosh. yeah. that that kind of i yeah. I don't remember I mean, that. Yeah. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead. Sorry. I didn't no, mean to I, cut you off. I was going to say, I don't remember the specific historical sort of basis of why we have Gitmo, but all I remember is that there's a Cuban side and then there's the U.S. base.
1: <laughs> yes. And uh, basically the, the U.S. base is on land leased in perpetuity, according to the, the treaty Basically, I believe if I'm not mistaken, it was a component of the Cuban American Treaty of relations. I think I want to say in nineteen o three but I could be mistaken. but so when I talk about you know terrorism being a citizenship claim that is made and rooted from you know pre foundation of the United States as you know a category of belonging from an imperial sort of context, I can give you like a historical overview that I think really makes clear why it is so easy to slot well, I mean, so easy for many people, I should say, to be very specific, slotting, you know, the Muslim terrorist as a, into like a particularly violent threat is a much easier than the white American man that, you know, has sympathies for Adam Wofford, for example, for the vast majority of of the American public. And yes, you know, I could tear myself into shreds for which part of the vast majority of the American public am i talking about. But in terms of social and collective memory, basically, right? It's easier to imagine a foreign threat as being particularly dangerous, right? And so that actually traces back one of the first uses of the word terror was actually applied... When do you think it was? Just out of curiosity. And to what, would you guess?
0: I'm probably going to say the 70s or 60s Palestinian hijackings?
1: Interestingly enough, no. It's fascinating because there are two, I've seen two schools of thought about this, both of which are really interesting to me because one of the instances is the French Revolution, right? And the american republican cis country of of france egalite you know and so on which is really fascinating on some level but actually the first use of the word terrorism as an action and as particularly a criminal action and a crime against property specifically which i find so interesting was used for the barbary pirates off the north african coast prior to the foundation of the united states and so basically there's a phenomenal book called White Freedom that I'll, I'll get you a reference for that has an entire chapter on basically the way in which North African piracy in the American imagination over time was configured as more of a threat than Caribbean piracy, which is the, the form that's lived on in like Hollywood representations and so on and so forth. But basically what I'm getting at is from the beginning, there were international issues such as you know, seed jurisdiction, crimes against property, and the figure of a, a Muslim perpetrator that was figured as a, a savage in those terms, right? A savage and a terrorist. But it was rooted more than just in crimes against property in this really, I would say voyeuristic obsession that many Europeans and, you know, proto-Americans, I guess you could say, not, not like my folks, indigenous mixed Americans, but, you know, early colonizers, basically, in captivity narratives of white slavery that was undertaken by Barbary pirates. So the first usage of the word terrorism is very much racialized, and it's linked to Muslims prior to the foundation of the United States. And I would argue that, you know, in many ways that that has survived. It's always been a category of an outsider that's violating an ideological normative framework in some way the way that it's used in the law rather. Okay. I'm not making a claim about the definition itself. So I want to be really clear about that. And if you trace this, this history, basically prior to the foundation of the nation state, you have discourses on the savage countries and savage peoples versus the civilized peoples. This is all the discourse around the international league of nations. If you're familiar with that, basically prior to prior to the, international community as we have it defined today but so you had like this this distinction between let's be blunt here white presumed christian nations who could suspend basically the laws of war when they were dealing with savages right this is before the nation state so you can just throw aside the whole issue of like state terrorism and and weber's monopoly on violence as being a legitimate you know aspect of the carrot and the, the coercion of a, a liberal nation state. But I think that that's something that, that's worth considering, right? So you have these savage versus civilized binaries, but then once you know, North America, specifically the United States, what would become the United States, begins to be colonized, you actually have the Apache Wars. And I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure how much you've heard about this. I'm sure many, many of, of the listeners know this already. But so Geronimo right? Geronimo was an Apache leader that was very involved in the Apache Wars, but he was also the, the code name that was used for Osama bin Laden, which was extremely offensive for a variety of reasons. But one thing that I want to point out that's compelling in terms of the racialization of the way that terrorism as a category and terrorist as an actor would evolve is the fact that the Apache Wars and the merciless Indian savage, which by the way, is a, a phrase from the Constitution. Or declaration. I'm super tired and I can't remember which right now, so apologies. But in any case, so the Apache Wars raged from like 1849, 1850, if I recall correctly, all the way through 1924. So longer than the American occupation of Afghanistan, which is also quite interesting. And the Indian savage that has to be tamed, right, and that is outside the, uh, the purview of this enlightened nation that has to be founded through genocide namely is configured as a security threat in a racialized way, right? When you look into the history of, for example, of boarding schools for indigenous Americans, there's one quote that's just absolutely abhorrent, you know, to me for many reasons, including familial history, but to save the Indian or to save the to save the man, you have to kill the Indian. And that was one of the rationales that was used for basically abducting Native children and, and putting them into boarding schools to civilize them, quote unquote. So you've got these categorical definitions that were inherited from a pre-nation state era, right? And they map onto violent resistance or acts of resistance that that have a political objective that are not seen as legitimate by those that have the power, basically. So what's interesting to me is you start scanning through American history over the, the centuries. And what you've got is, By the time the U.S. ends up annexing the Philippines, which happens around the turn of the century, like 1899, 1898, if I recall correctly, you have the Indian savage specifically invoked as the prototype for dealing with subduing and pacifying Filipino resistance, namely the Muslim Moros, okay, in the Philippines. And why this, I think, is really, really significant. Again, right, you have an imperial category that most Americans are completely unaware of, But this is also when waterboarding becomes a known military practice, despite what, you know, CIA officers and representatives would would like to say now, post 9-11, about enhanced interrogation techniques being something that was improvised, right, out of necessity. Waterboarding as a practice that was used by the United States military actually really took off in the Philippines, as did the discourses of insurgency and counterinsurgency. And those frames applied to the Muslim Moros in particular in the Philippines mapped directly onto the the image basically of this merciless Indian savage that had to be eradicated from the land to have this peaceful nation that, you know, in Manifest Destiny land. But what's interesting again to me is that, you know, there is a trajectory that you can clearly trace once you begin digging into the history And when you look at the the threat categories at various points throughout American history, you know, yes, you have different enemies slide in and out, but one thread throughout that has been a a racialized religious other. And it's really easy to slot the Muslim generic right into that. However, that said, I want to briefly touch back on the the citizenship concept because you think about Dred Scott, right? Dred Scott, basically that decision by the Supreme Court says that African Americans cannot be citizens of the United States by virtue of the fact that they are not white, you know, so there's a racialized conception of citizenship linked to a threat that runs all the way throughout American history, you know, through the present, I would add, you know, reconstruction, like you mentioned, you have similar things going on, the Chinese Exclusion Act, right, where you have immigration basically curtailed from Southeast Asia, you have Japanese internment camps. At each of these stages, right, you have a racialized other that's seen as not qualified for a citizenship that is rooted in a particular foundational ideology, And any form of resistance by these groups, even the threat thereof, is conceived up in the terminology of of the terrorist, of the savage, right? And it's the prototypical approach, the paradigmatic view. Does that make sense? I know it's like kind of a a giant theoretical umbrella, but you can trace basically adoption of these terms, I think, through flashpoints historically and in more recent terms, like you had pointed out, the 70s, right? When you had the phenomenon of airline hijackings that until the 70s had been seen as, as just a criminal action instead of an act of terrorism. But really, the discourse of international terrorism kicks off in the 70s after Munich and the Olympics. Well, I mean, why is that in part, do we think? Part of it is the fact that, you know, it's again this discourse of a community of nations right? Where you have to draw the the parameters and the boundaries and the in-group and the out-group. And it's an attack over media, right? With a much broader dissemination audience at an international cooperative event. So challenging the categories of who is a member of the international community at that time, definitely mapped onto the same rhetoric of, you know, the, the savage and the civilized countries that, that, could rationalize suspending moral conduct in war, you know, in the colonial era, pre-colonial era, because savages only understood violence. It's the same sort of terminology you get applied to the terrorist category from the 70s on. And I think one thing that's really significant about that is that, you know, it's it's in the 70s and, and from the 60s, 70s, like around the time, I would say from Johnson through Nixon, through Reagan, you begin to have those exclusionary categories of immigration restriction eased in different ways, right? And immigration from different parts of the world is increasing and you start having categories of, of people that define themselves as real Americans, right? feeling that they're under threat. And it's a, these are moments of like great tension in the definition of, of who has the right to be a citizen. And that discourse that runs all throughout our history is punctuated with these moments of a threat to not just the nation, but national identity and by extension, the concept of the citizen. Does that make sense? Or am I ranting, ranting off to the side?
0: No, it really does. And I think think in some ways you describe the 9-11 and the ISIS periods perfectly. Like I almost think that like, that's what you touched on, the ideas of the citizenship claim, the ideological violation, the kind of infer the other.
1: But- you know, it's funny. It's really funny that you say that because I was at a conference in Dublin several years ago and it's, it was the day of the Brexit vote coming in and I was presenting a, a talk on ISIS. And one of my opening statements was, you know, basically, what is it about ISIS that is such a a challenge? And and what is it about ISIS that makes them so attractive to a a broad segment of people, you know, enough to like to have the the army configurations that they did. And I I had referred to them as a proto-nation state engaged in in nation branding, specifically in trying to draw immigration like immigrants to that particular homeland, right? And I had said, and this prompt, I got so much heat for this, but I I stand by it. Basically, the idea, ISIS was violating traditional ideas of West nation state sovereignty, right? They were basically being transnational nationalists, challenging these citizenship categories, but they were also very much on top of the zeitgeist. And what I mean by that now is the nation state globally is in crisis. Everyone knows this right? We see it in, in retreats to communitarian identity all over the world, like whether it's India and the BJP and Hindu Vata, or it's China's policy toward the Uyghurs, right? There is a, a retreat into identitarian sort of configurations that is very much in reaction to basically, I would say, you know, paradoxes and, and problems with the, the nation state configuration. And ISIS was right at that zeitgeist at the same time as Brexit broke, Right. So sorry, I just wanted to, to jump on, on that and sort of piggyback off it because I think, you know, Al-Qaeda was terrifying to Americans for several different reasons, one of which was, you know, in the forever war where there's no front line and your opponent doesn't wear a uniform, how can you identify who the enemy really is, right? That was how we were meant to understand the problem of that threat. But once we get to the period of ISIS, then the threat transmogrifies into, they fight like conventional proto, a proto-military. a proto I think that's what, it was a proto-army's conventional warfare techniques, I think, or something along the, those lines that David Kilcolin referenced when he talked about ISIS, but they also had claims to be a state, right? And in many ways, an expansionistic imperial state with an ideological foundation of, you know, you could definitely argue manifest destiny, and that's not an endorsement, right? But you have challenges to the legitimacy of other states' monopoly on citizenship claims and on the application of violence and on essentially the provision of a welfare state. So I think that entirely changed the category, but again, it's all shifting around this idea of basically clearly delineating the citizen that is appropriate and the citizen that can never be, basically like the, the homo sasser of. You know, national identity. I guess you could say
0: that's interesting. I mean, it what you're saying really describes the 9/11, greater war on terror, and the ISIS period kind of perfectly. But like, how would you describe the struggle with white supremacist and white nationalist terrorism? I mean, it seems it seems there's still this ideological violation. There's still this kind of challenge to the concept of citizenship, but then you remove the otherness, right? There well, well,
1: okay. <laughs> See, like, I'm so glad you brought this up because at the very beginning when I said, you know, it's I want people to stop using the term terrorism and terrorists. And I said right now is a particularly dangerous time, January 6th, in relation to right. And I'll get into why. I'm so glad that you brought that up because here's the thing. One of the best descriptions I think that I've heard of the events of January 6th, there's this phenomenal academic by the name of Dylan Rodriguez. I think he's at UC Irvine or Riverside. I can't remember which one, but he wrote the book, White Reconstruction. He's also written on the the colonization, annexation, resistance in the Philippines, but he referred to the events of January 6th as basically not an insurrection at all, but a policing action which I found phenomenally, you know, provocative, and especially as someone that specializes in, in one area, right, in infiltration strategies for, you know, white supremacists trying to engage in, in, in military training and, and gain policing capacity and things like that. But basically why I'm saying it's so dangerous to be using that now is trying to think of how to bullet point this because there are a lot of moving parts. You are familiar with the great replacement or replacement theory, correct? Yes. Or do you want me to? Okay. So think, yeah. for, for listeners that aren't, right? Like white supremacists for basically ever and ever, amen, have been flipping out about the, the point at which white Americans, whatever the hell that category is even supposed to mean, because Whiteness is such a ridiculously constructive and constructed and contested category, particularly here. But um, basically, they've had this this horror about the tipping point, right? And when essentially post civil rights era, where you have public consequence, like you have consequences professionally and personally for publicly being racist, right? And you have to be clandestine about the way that you're approaching. You know, being an abhorrent <laughs> racist, like, it's not like, you know, the Klan sheriffs um all basically turned kumbaya because Johnson signed off on the Voting Rights Act. That didn't happen. They went underground, right? But the, the thing is, you've had the, the theory of the Great Replacement and the Browning of America, what came to be termed that, right? It was sort of like laundered under Nixon with Lee Atwater's comments. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with this, with the, basically the embrace of euphemisms because you couldn't publicly be blatantly racist anymore, so you had to turn to phrases like "urban," right? These dog whistles that then Reagan built on. These are also times of increased immigration from like "quote unquote" black and brown countries, which you know has panicked white American identity. In, in exponential form, I think, over the years. But the reason this is really, really, really dangerous at the present moment and intersects with replacement theory, obviously the idea that Jews are importing black and brown migrants to make America no longer white is in utter bullshit, right? I can say that, but I have to, because I absolutely believe that's complete bullshit. However, you know, we have to, to consider For those who see that as a reality, right, what proof texts are they finding validation from, right? Well, 2045 is on the horizon, right, where immigration will tip this country into being like, quote unquote, white minorities. And so basically, the thing is, now we're in a situation where because we've inherited this category of like, the terrorist accusation means you are not a real American, right, You are the one violating the meaning of what it is to belong here, whether it's Lauren Boebert screaming that about Ilhan Omar, right? Or someone saying the same thing about Lauren Boebert, right? These politically partisan, I guess, ideological rhetorical weapons that that are the, the terrorist labels basically are now understood by this group of white Americans who are seeing changes on the horizon that are real changes not instigated by a global Jewish cabal, right, but like 2045, the the date that a lot of, you know, you'll come across, like there was a wild time cover story about this that inflamed tons of the neo-Nazis, and basically about like, again, the quote-unquote browning of America. So they, they, these entitled, you could say, I think very fairly, uh, white Americans that have always held these positions of power and privilege and the ability to define the parameters of who constituted, you know, the nation state and claims to it have always understood the term terrorist as meaning you have no claim to the state. You do not deserve to be represented as such. You're not fully a citizen. You're not a real American. Now they are hearing that and now they are feeling very much under threat. Even those who don't believe like the conspiratorial Jewish explanation for the great replacement but are encountering like the Tucker Carlson globalist laundered version, right, of replacement theory, and they don't understand the roots in neo-Nazi ideology, they do recognize that there is a shift in, you know, the future demographic horizons of, of the country, and that scares them for whatever reason, right? And so the danger basically is they understand that the application of the word terrorism excludes you from a legitimate claim, on national identity and a say in the future of the country. And that's incredibly threatening to people. And when I referred to Dylan Rodriguez's comments about January 6th being, you know, a policing action, someone had asked, you know, what were your thoughts on it? And he said, I I wasn't surprised. And the the really screwed up thing about it is that in some ways they were right because they were they were taking what is theirs. Right. And he wasn't endorsing it, and I'm not endorsing it, but he was like, to me, it looked like entitlement, right? And I think when you look at the swirling around of the label of like January 6th terrorists, January 6th protesters, you see those same categories that we talked about before, where, you know, certain definitions of who is an, a, a real American and a true citizen and has the ability to, to stick those claims, right? the demographics are reversing and that's terrifying for a significant component of this country that also happens to have a shitload of power. Makes sense?
0: Yes. So okay. then, so then,
1: it's like, it's you, like lighting a few, you know, the fuse on the powder keg basically, because to them, it's like the, the tables have finally turned, even if they would not identify themselves as white supremacists, you know, perhaps it would be, I'm worried about my children's future and, They don't speak Spanish and, you know, all all the the usual crap that you hear, right? Among people that would say, I'm not racist and, you know, beyond the incredibly transparent racism of like, quote unquote, I have a black friend, right? But basically there's a, a, I think a tipping point and we are increasingly so politically partisan and divided that so much of it maps onto racial Categories maps onto class categories, you know, and that word is wielded as a weapon, completely independent of any juridical regime regime to regulate it. Right. So you've got the category of terrorist and terrorism, the the whole discourse basically functioning on multiple levels. You've got the juridical regime, which is incredibly problematic given the fact that there's no distinction between international and national. I mean, there never has been in an imperial, you know, context, which is the United States. And definitely there's not now with the way that borders in, in the era of globalization have become increasingly, you know, porous, the way that capital is being, you know, transmitted. And I mean, shit, COVID, right? The perfect example, I think, of porousness of borders. So, you know, that's another, an, the fictional basically distinction between a national and an international legal artifice basically that could hold up any useful really application of, of terrorist as a criminal category also comes into play.
0: But I mean not but but there's Oh feel free
1: man I'll argue.
0: No 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 I, I don't argue. It's just <laughs> I, I'm trying to think but I you, love what you describe is so fluid and so ill defined, I guess, as a kind of from my perspective, but how does, I mean. Despite- exactly.
1: It's That's that's exactly it though, right? It's so ill-defined. However, it's over-defined at the same time. You know what I mean? Like it again, is it's this, this moving target that inherently is just nebulous that you cannot pin down. And then at the same time, it's a moral judgment about legitimacy of particular categories and actions that link back to a political community. That's why it's so profoundly dangerous.
0: But, it, but it's not just debates about identity and citizenship. You, you have prosecutions. You, these well, yeah, def- of
1: course. But, but that's what I'm saying. Like, the law does not apply equally to citizens of different countries, right? The mm-hmm. law... I mean, the fact that the domestic terrorism as such, according to that FBI definition that I read you at the very beginning, right? Criminally speaking you know, they they said it was a definitional statute, not a charging statute, right? So obviously there is a distinctive separation between an international and a domestic juridical regime, right? Even though those border configurations don't make sense in practice, right? To give you an example, I think that that holds, right? Like, you can get charged with a terrorism offense if you claim allegiance or inspiration from ISIS. Why? Because ISIS is located internationally, right? Adam Waffen Division, on the other hand, which has been designated as a terrorist group by New Zealand as well as Canada, right? But not the United States. Adam Waffen actors who have engaged in a lot of violence have not been charged with domestic terrorism you know, why is that? The arbitrary fictional nature of borders, right? But it also, it comes with all of these paradigmatic sort of taken for granted assumptions underpinning those definitions, if that makes a little bit more sense. I'm not saying that the legal system doesn't exist, because it certainly does. But once we begin to break down the way that, say, media covers different acts of political violence, or prosecutions, for example, you begin to see these citizenship identity assumptions play out in real time. And the reason that they're so powerful is that they are unspoken and they are taken for granted, right? It's a lot like Leatwaters, you know, use dog whistles instead of dropping the N-word strategy in many, many ways. So to give you an example, right, I will do a big mea culpa and divulge, you know, several incidents that I've been involved in and around Where I have tried at different points in my life to use the label of terrorism, you know, in in a like a reclamative, I guess you could say, way, or as like a counter to state violence and basically, you know, like white supremacist violence, for example. So the first one that I'll tell you, because you know, you you talked to the very beginning about like what I do. And I, I refer to myself as a mutant, right? I didn't want to be in political violence at all as a field because I am an artist and that is what I wanted to do. I got sucked into it for a variety of reasons. But so the, the first point that I would make about this is I have caught myself in many instances, looking back When I have spoken the language of terrorism discourse, thinking that I was doing either anti-racist work, right. Or condemning white supremacist violence or so on and so forth. And in hindsight, what I was doing was re basically re-entrenching the the language and the the parameters and the categories of the state. So to really illustrate that for you, George Tiller was an uncle of, of mine by marriage and George Tiller was a, a, an abortion doctor in Wichita, Kansas, and so my my whole childhood was basically on during the the so called ab- abortion wars, where you had basically clinics under attack, being firebombed, you know, acid being thrown on people. George was shot twice in the arms, came back to work the next day. His clinic was firebombed in when well, I think I was five, and then he was finally assassinated at at church while he was wearing a bulletproof vest as an usher and his wife was singing in the choir he wore bulletproof vests to church every sunday and when i've talked about this and i've talked about anti you know reproductive rights like anti choice violence and i've talked about you know george's death i have caught myself condemning the people that did it in the same terms that i would reject as like what makes him someone that should be off limits, sort of, for for violence, or someone that we should, you know, reclaim? He was a Navy veteran. He was a devout Lutheran. He was a Christian man. He voted Republican his whole life, you know, and it, like all of these categories that are taken for granted historically of what an authentic American is, right? Calling that terrorism against him is a manipulative rhetorical move on my part and it was effective, but why was it effective, right? Because I was speaking the same language of those those categories of identity and shifting the discourse around for people that that wouldn't expect it to be read that way, if that makes sense. So that's one instance. Um, Another one, I think that it really troubles me and actually is the reason that I started working on political violence in the first place is I, you know, I I knew Stephen Sotloff and and Jim Foley and I was supposed to go to Syria with Stephen and I I bailed at the last minute. And obviously, you know, they were kidnapped and and beheaded on camera by ISIS. And I encountered those videos by accident. It's a really long story and I'm not going to go into it, but I was appalled by the techniques that were taken in the execution videos that are so radically different than any other genre of j- jihadi execution you know, snuff films in the sense that they foregrounded the innocence of their victims. There wasn't like the kangaroo court where they make someone confess and say, I'm a spy for Mossad or whatever. You know, it was, they, they had Jimmy and Steven like speak and basically you know, write their own statements and rehearse them and they were personalized and they referred to them as innocence you know, in their address, their mode of address and said, like, you know, Obama, you know, this this innocent civilian will die because of your actions, right? That's a radical departure from the way that, you know, Al-Qaeda in Iraq had had functioned before, where it's like, you know, your name is so-and-so, and you're spying on behalf of CIA, and now you're gonna die, you know, and we've decided this by a kangaroo court. So what does that do, right? When I started addressing that in public, because I felt like, those propaganda films are so effective because they they're recruiting for ISIS, but they're recruiting for anti-ISIS fighters in this apocalyptic confrontation, right? They're recruiting you against your will because you identify so strongly with this heroic victim, which is the the way that, you know, my friends were portrayed. And we all know that that would not be the same case for, for a non-white man that was executed by ISIS. I mean, at the time, One of my my dear friends is a a senior Al Jazeera correspondent and he had a very close friend that was also kidnapped and executed by ISIS, you know, not a peep. Nobody was threatening war over this Iraq cameraman that was executed. However, Jimmy and Steve, you know, I mean, Jim's execution is the most viewed video on the internet of all time, right? Basically the, the categories of citizenship that again, I kept having to fall into, to talk about anti-racist work, we're still making those state claims in a way that really bothered me. And then I guess there's like a couple other examples that I can give you. I was invited to the University of Cambridge to talk about the Shamima Begum case. And Shamima Begum was a 14-year-old at the time who ran away from the UK to join the so-called Islamic state. And she was discovered in a refugee camp a couple years later, pregnant with a child that passed away. But basically, the UK refused to repatriate her and they stripped her citizenship on the grounds that she had committed terrorist offenses. That's incredibly problematic for a variety of reasons. Namely, Shamima Begum had never been to Bangladesh. Her parents were Bangladeshi. She was Bangladeshi in origin, right? But she didn't have citizenship there she'd never been. And essentially the move by the British state was saying, you know, you are a colonial subject essentially, and you have deviated from the ideological normative structures of the state. You are outside the purview of the citizen. And we are taking that away from you. Right. And, you know, she, she wasn't committing political violence that that we we knew about, right. Her crime was material support basically by tweeting in favor of ISIS, which, you know, I Obviously, I can't stand ISIS for personal reasons, ethical reasons, spiritual reasons, like every reason, you know, on earth. But the fact of the matter is, you know, to take someone's citizenship away because of a thought crime, it goes down a lot easier when it is Shemima Begum of Bangladeshi origin than it it does when it's an Irish citizen that has gone to join ISIS as an adult and in engaged in political violence, you know, because there is a huge disparity in media coverage of that phenomenon, you know, to say nothing of her age, right. Which is another real issue. But in any case, when I was coming back, well, well, when I was going, when I was going into the UK, I was basically scheduled seven detention. If you're familiar with that, which I expected because of what I work on. So I bought like a whole new laptop, you know, clean hard drives, because It was a violation of of British law to have the talk PowerPoint that I had been invited to give because it contained propaganda produced by ISIS. So basically, like, to get myself out of that situation, you know, and convince them that I'm not pro-ISIS, I had to fall into these categories of, like, I'm a counterterrorism expert, you know, and, like, I'm firmly anti-terrorist and all of these tropes that you play on that help get you out of the situation if you're white passing, right? A lot easier, but are very uncomfortable when you look at these definitions, the way that they function in legal context in, in the long view. So I think that's another instance. And then finally, I would say, I think I was telling you this before, correct me if I'm wrong, but so basically I was a, targeted by a couple of neo-Nazi groups on a, you know, an assassination list a couple of years ago. And I ended up having to deal with the FBI in the state of New York and the New York state, like the highway patrol or whatever. And I I had the weirdest experience with trying to convince them that accelerationist violence was a thing, right? They kept telling me, you know, we don't, we don't deal with this necessarily. We're kind of out of our element because we deal with like domestic terrorism versus international terrorism, right? Like we don't deal with DT, we deal with IT. I will specifically remember the, the statey saying this. And I, I was appalled and I was like, you know, how can you, make, that distinction doesn't hold up. And to the point where I had to pull up a picture of Nazaro of the base in St. Petersburg, you know, in a BBC article and say like, this is the person that is running the base. One of the neo-Nazi organizations. He is based in Russia right now. This is not a domestic security problem. It is international, and it just, it has been for quite some time. I mean, back in the Metzger days, right? He was sending skinheads into the military that were working in Sweden, basically, and working in Germany and throughout Europe and the UK in particular to recruit, like. The white supremacist angle also has never been exclusively domestic. Even the KKK had international branches, you know, around reconstruction. So the, the idea that somehow these, these categories in, in the bifurcated like, legal system of international versus domestic don't have clearly racialized elements that just don't hold water in historical and geopolitical perspective, it just, it really collapses in that, that perspective, I think.
0: I mean, in terms of enforcement, I think like, I think like the stark comparison of you can literally plan a coup on Twitter and Facebook and not be held account- accountable until you have your feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk, versus well
1: but like hold on yeah true but that's the thing this is where we really i think are in danger of of screwing up like everybody i'm not saying like you or me or you know whoever but like yes there is that disparity there's absolutely that disparity it's clear to anybody i think that really has like rationality and logical reasoning skills however to the people that that stormed the Capitol, you know that stole Pelosi's laptop that you know, all of the people to whom you are referring their sense of threat to them is very real to them. They are losing power and they are losing a country to which they feel entitled. Right. And to them, their action was patriotic protest and to people that opposed what they were doing, it was domestic terrorism. Right. And the reason it's so threatening to them to be called a terrorist is because that has a meaning that is not only racial, right, but has everything to do with who has a stake and a claim in the future of the country politically, which is what the whole thing was about.
0: That's interesting because it's...
1: I'm, well, not, endorsing I... it. I'm not endorsing it at all. I'm just saying that I think you know, this is why it's really dangerous to, to talk about like a domestic terrorism set of laws now because we are at powder keg moment you know, politically speaking in this country, right? Where again, that tipping point of a much more diverse country where people, you know, people of color are obtaining more positions of power. And that doesn't mean, but we're far, far cry from, you know, egalitarian justice, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, but the perception of threat, right? To those who do hold power is very real and they are willing to go to great lengths to protect that, right? Basically, like Dylan Rodriguez said, it, the entitlement at work, that is, I think, in in parallel, in many ways, what you saw with the, the KKK, right? In their original configuration, you could do parallels with the Proud Boys, right? Basically, the shock troops of the regime that they're defending. Because it's not just that, like, the KKK, we can't just say the KKK were terrorists, right? I mean, you know, in terms of my political opinion and my ethical opinions. Yeah, sure, I would call them that. But I have to be very careful with that term because were they terrorists? Because they were also the shock troops of a state and the shock troops of a white supremacist power structure that didn't render them outside the predominant upper echelons of, of you know political power, control, land ownership, whatever. Uh, all I'm saying is, is I think that we have to take very seriously how these labels and the expansion of, of those juridical categories can go horribly wrong right in the name of like okay take for example you know those memes of like yelkaida or in like vanilla isis
0: yeah it's i hate those yeah. <laughs> but yeah i, I
1: can't stand them. and i can't stand them for very specific reasons that that lock into exactly what we're talking about on several levels so there's this weird misguided liberal impulse that, you know, if, if we claim that like, oh, white people commit terrorism too, they're not treated equally in terms of being charged with terrorism. We should just expand the draconian security state to like also encompass white people. You're going to call that justice. You know, I, no, I mean, that's not how it works, right? Like that's not egalitarianism. That's just expanding, you know, a draconian policy. But so that that's one problem I have with it. You know, then there's the really, really obvious issue of like, you know, by calling something vanilla ISIS, you are normatively defining the inherently violent as the Middle Eastern slash Muslim, right? And the vanilla version as like, you know, the exception, basically, that proves the rule, right? In this misguided attempt at, at reclamation of that category, right? Of like a violent terrorist actor. So there's that, that really drives me, but what you'll see also Oh, okay. There's the association with the South, right? Y'all-Qaeda, right? And the idea that that people who are right-wing, the people that were at the Capitol, that white supremacists are confined to the South, that they are, are you know, poor and they are uneducated is extremely dangerous. You know, you miss the fact that where was segregation most durable, you know, after the Civil War? Well, it was in the North, right? I mean, and I'm not going to get into like the Supreme Court and, you know, approaches to like you know, de facto segregation versus de jure. But like, what I'm saying is that, you know, it's it's not that the North was anti-racist at all. You know, anyone that's lived in upstate New York and seen the Confederate flags everywhere can tell you that even now, right? So the Yal-Qaeda memes and, and so on and so forth perform this sort of like distancing in a really gross, uncomfortable, counterproductive way and that, they, they propagate this image of equivalency between like a barbaric savage Middle East, right? And a barbaric savage backwards South. And I, I don't know how people miss the fact that, you know, Stephen, Stephen Miller is from Santa Monica, California, you know, and Steve Bannon's not poor. He has a lot of money, you know, so we miss these huge power brokers that are threats when we try to expand a category like like terrorism into a domestic realm for also white people whether it's through you know memes or or like so on and so forth because it masks the structures that really really are the danger if that makes sense at all
0: no it, it really does i think yeah because i mean i mean it just i see this in prosecutions over and over again right you You go for what is kind of plays well in the public that is kind of expedites the case. Yeah.
1: What will get you a conviction? Say it again. What will get you a conviction if you're a prosecutor?
0: Exactly. Like, I I think.
1: I have a. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: I I was going to say that for the show, we're working on something covering the Oklahoma city bombing. And yeah. Uh, When we started digging into like Merrick Garland's record, like there is a line in the Washington Post where he's like, basically, we're going to push and and make this and resolve this as quickly as possible, right? We're going to, we're not, Uh we're going to go for justice, we're going to go for whatever. And it's, there's no deeper examination, right? It almost seems like- yeah of course not
1: and why like that that's where I want people to begin asking the questions right that's not when the discussion stops that's when it should start you know so like a, a, I think you know something that that like came up in my mind and it just slipped away given two seconds because shit it was so apropos anyway keep keep talking I'll I'll, I'll remember it
0: well I mean like it's it almost seems like you know the the tension between a prosecution and the public.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: If, if, if there's an even attention, right? If
1: you know, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, well, go for ahead. one, um, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I, I have so much to say, but you know, you did invite me, knowing how terrible I am at this. Like, <laughs> thank you for your patience again. Okay, I remember. Basically, one of the the most frustrating experiences that I had recently was I, I'm not going to get too into the details, but basically, somebody. That also monitors telegram and knows a lot about Christian identity movement, the neo nazi version of christianity like and do not tell me in my mentions that it 's Christian nationalism because these are different things like this is literally Jesus wants you to start a race war and that 's how you go to heaven like this isn 't just a racist Christian, this is literally the theology of salvation it 's predicated on being white. But, but anyway, there was a, a murder in Canada and a friend of mine and I that monitored this stuff had basically been in the position of having a lot of information on the person that did it, including probable motive linked to CIA ideology and had to deal with RCMP. And it was a domestic case. And basically the rumors had been like the, the girlfriend was cheating on him with a, a black man. I mean, this is one of the many rumors basically, but essentially like RCMP and on the Canadian side, like they, they just went for, you know, the, the domestic homicide conviction because it was easier, you know, than actually looking into volumes of evidence that this guy, like, you know, he had like 10 Facebook profiles and several different blogs about being a neo-Nazi And the imperative of essentially blood atonement for a woman that's a quote unquote coal burner that, you know, is engaged in miscegenation, you know, but they wouldn't even like, it just, that's not the kind of thing that gets you a quick conviction. So why even go down the terrorism route, you know? So I think that that's a case that that comes immediately to mind where if, you know, I, I don't believe for a second that if the guy's name was Ahmed and he had beheaded his wife, that that wouldn't be an avenue that, that RCMP didn't pursue relentlessly.
0: That's interesting. I mean, do you see that dynamic playing out in the 1-6 prosecutions? Like, it seems to me that these prosecutions, they're going a little slower, but they're kind of getting it, it feels like from the outside, correct, right? You're charging the the leaders and sort of the The top tier people like Stuart Rhodes, you're charging him with sedition and then everyone else is getting a collection
1: of felonies
0: or yeah, no, no, go ahead.
1: No, I'm sorry. I get so uncomfortable with this for a lot of reasons, because are you familiar with the Fort Smith seditious conspiracy trial in Arkansas in what was it like 1988? I want to say no 1989 around there. That's 1988.
0: I think so. That's one of the cases highlighted by Kathleen Ballou.
1: Yes. And actually, I think the day after January 6th, I did this huge Twitter thread about it because I was like, okay, the government's prosecution here has to be really fucking careful because they blew it in the, the Fort Smith seditious conspiracy trial for a variety of reasons. And like, I know I've already talked your ear off, so I can't really go into a ton of detail about it. But there are certain elements of, I I think that there are parallels and there are divergence, divergences and I, I do think that the state is quite cognizant of how profoundly they fucked up in Fort Smith on um, for a variety of reasons. And like, I would love to just start going off about the Oath Keepers and Stuart Rhodes in particular, because, you know, like, the Oath Keepers had basically helped leak the, the DHS report in 2009 about, you know, recruiting military, like basically recruiting military members. And they leaked this confidential report from inside DHS before they had announced their own existence as a group yet. Like, I think they announced, Stuart Rhodes announced the group like three weeks later, but the the guy that was responsible at the time for the office at DHS that monitored far right extremism wrote a book and and discusses this at length. So, you know, I I do think they're smart for going after the the leaders. And yeah, you know what you're saying, but my my verbosity and like, you know, hyperactiveness makes me really want to get into like Fort Smith and the problems of Fort Smith because they were picking leaders of different white supremacist and far right like contingents, right? And trying them all together. And I think that's something they're kind of avoiding, but I'm not sure really what you're asking in terms of like, like how they are proceeding because it's, it's, it's a mess, right? Like it's a much bigger set of defendants in, in a much more varied set of charges, you know, I think than than I'm qualified to like give you a, an analysis off the cuff about it. It'd be irresponsible.
0: I think there's a, a few threads you can It's a choose your own thread. One is, I think you highlighted perfectly is the it, it always seems from the outside that when prosecutions come to terrorism cases that deal with non white people, to put it gently, mm-hmm. there's less fuck up. Whereas a part wait, of the language, is there
1: less wait, hold on, less fuck ups, or is the system designed to work successfully the way it's working?
0: There that could also be a kind of a different wording of it, I mean, yeah. I mean, it just—it's
1: it's a regulating function of excluding a certain contingent of 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 like, you know, the the untouchable. So, is it that they're fucking up more, or is it that it's it's a, a machine of a structure and a governmental apparatus that you know functions in these specific ways to define the par- parameters of the community?
0: I I mean, I think that that I think there lies the struggle, right? So. I'm trying to understand why when when prosecutions come to cases involving like the Fort Smith sedition trial, like the CSA, like a mm-hmm. uh, hundred other cases involving white defendants.
1: Oh, uh, okay. I see where you're going. And I, can I jump in? I'm so yeah, sorry. Of course, of I know
0: course. I know always, 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 always.
1: <laughs> well, like it's, it's fascinating because one of the points that I wanted to just spout off about in terms of port smith is well for one what jury do you think that these guys got what configuration of jury demographics do you think factored in you know
0: all white jury
1: (laughs) well i mean you can't ignore any facet of basically how these systemic orders function right like who are the felons like in certain areas because of structural racism and therefore precluded from serving on a jury Rendering the possibility of a white-dominated jury in, you know, a non-white-dominated area more possible, right? So you can't ignore any facet of this because it's all involved in a giant system. So I think that that that's one aspect, but specifically related to Fort Smith and one of the parallels to which I, I was implicitly referring. Basically, the Fort Smith trial hinged on freedom of expression, the First Amendment. Patriotism, their country, their service as veterans. And I'm thinking specifically of former Klan leader, Louis Beam, who incidentally gave an impromptu victory speech after he was acquitted in front of a Confederate monument right outside the courthouse, right? But he spoke very eloquently of his service, you know, and like his patriotic service to his country. Except for the fact that he came back from Vietnam, you know, hell bent on fighting an, an insurgency against the state, right, to eliminate Black and Brown people. So you had the same laundering of similar goals and objectives. And, you know, if you wanted to be generous and charitable, which I really don't want to be, but let's just play devil's advocate and say people are unaware of the explicitly racist and hyper-violent neo-Nazi origins of a lot of basically the shit, you know, they, they would buy into that laundering of patriotism in my country. And again, you're back to who counts as the citizen, who has the right to free speech, who can be policed for a thought crime and who can't. And what renders them more immune and who's judging. And why?
0: So then, you know, I know know neither of us are in the realm of forecasting, but there is a lot of energy from the left. I want to say mostly left spaces because I only hear this argument from the left, which is we have uh, a
1: left country because I'm not convinced that we do.
0: Let's just say it's a combination of Twitter and and some conversations I've had with people.
1: Okay, so like not the corporate Democrats that that would be considered like neoliberal right wing in Europe.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, a lot of it is like they're kind of pushing for more. The best way I can sum up the argument is that they're pushing for more anti- and counter terror laws, right? So
1: yeah, domestically. Yeah. Why are they doing
0: that? No, well, it's not why, but I want you to kind of game it out for us. Where do you think will that end up? Like, is that really something that's going to come in bite everyone in the ass, so to speak.
1: Well, here's the problem historically, what we know for a fact with, you know, basically surveillance systems and measures that are meant to, say, seek justice for people of color. And and historically in this this country, where has the attention gone well it's gone to the left and it's gone to the very communities that were ostensibly the of the protected object of that legislation right? So we know who the blowback is going to be coming forward like antifa identified people et cetera right on the there's like that really obvious critique which i I do agree with but to my mind, one of the biggest problems with this whole situation that, that we're in is, again, I'm coming back to the fact that the demographics of this country are shifting, right? That's a fact. I'm particularly thrilled about it. You know, a lot of people who are at the Capitol are distinctly not, <laughs> And I, again, I want to draw a distinction right between that demographic shift upcoming and the great replacement, because they are not the same thing, right? But it is a reality that, those, that the, the composition of American citizens is changing. So I'm, I'm invoking this because of the fact that, you know, demographics are such that now what passes for the left, right? And I think what a lot of people would refer to as like respectability politic politicians are forced for political expediency to at least make gestures countering like white supremacy you know and being more inclusive but it's kind of like the meme of you know the the bomb like the the jet under like trump and the jet under obama i can't remember but one had like a trans flag they were dropping bombs and they had like you know queer pride and trans flags and then the other one didn't and it's you know the same bomb shit it's just got like an inclusive label on it, you know? So there's an increasing pressure from constituencies that are driven by demographic shifts to at least make these hollow gestures. You know what I mean? And I'm not meaning to suggest that they're inherently hollow across the board, but I have very little faith in, in political sincerity given the way that our system operates. Right. And the problem with that, I think is that again, you know, terrorism in in my mind is, such a problematic category because of the juridical issues that we talked about in the international and domestic, you know, invisibility of, of of that separation, really, juridically speaking, and you know the the legal imbalances in prosecutorial records and so on and so forth, like all of that crap aside, you know, basically there's zero strategy. When your goal is to get reelected, you're not thinking about the long-term political strategy needed to deescalate a climate of hyper hype, you know, volatile possibilities for political violence, you know? And that again, to me is the issue with like, now you've got stigma, like people that I think are completely wrongheaded thinking that they are being disenfranchised, their country is being stolen from them. They are no longer like equal citizens, Right. And it's a powder keg, right? And they feel targeted by domestic terrorism as a category. And another flashpoint, I think, that is a parallel worth noting is 2009 after the Oath Keepers leaked that report. What happened? A media campaign immediately right wing, you know, internet talk show spheres kicked off with people like Michelle Malkin, you know, and Rush Limbaugh and all sorts of people claiming, I am a proud right-wing extremist, right? Because for them also, it was politically expedient to fan the flames of this category of extremism, you know, to fuel the persecution that ensures a base, you know? And I'm not saying that the democratic left, you know, in trying to expand, you know, like counterterrorism that's aimed at, white supremacy, I'm not saying they're doing something equivalent like fanning the flames of false threat at all. But what I am saying is that there are problems with the way that the electoral system functions in terms of the indebtedness of politicians to particular constituencies and the craven expediency of their calculus, I think, when they make a lot of policy decisions instead of, you know, strategic planning for long-term de-escalation frankly i know i'm cynical as hell sorry
0: but i i think that cynic that cynicism is well placed like i just
1: i'm having i really don't and actually before i forget because someone had had asked me on twitter like one of the questions that they wanted me to address was like how do you keep doing this because it sucks basically like how are you not depressed all the time like what what keeps you fighting. I, I'm really irritable and I hate crappy logic, you know, and it's like one of my pet peeves. And also I don't, I can't sit still for this because what, what else are you going to do except for just, you know, relinquish, you know, your life to chaos and death, you know, there's just, there's not another option and that's what I think keeps me going. So managed to get that in my A so, to B state. But I want you know what i mean like right. I, fight, I fight with that all the time like if there is a format like this or you know like the other podcasts and, and media interviews and stuff that i do that is the platform where maybe someone will listen you know like the whole reason that i'm on twitter um is this kind of stuff right public education to make people think critically right to affect like one person that's the kind of that's the kind of change that i think is is tangible and possible right? But at a structural systemic level, I am not smart enough. I am not powerful enough, right, to overcome my my perception of that cynicism and that that craven, just like general shittiness, you know. So I don't want the cynicism, and so basically, I, I spend all my time trying to fight it through like tiny actions, you know. But it's frustrating for sure.
0: No, that makes sense. I mean, it's just I think the law makes me really cynical and it makes me like. Like, because yeah. I, I, I come from a space where, like, at least in my day job, like, the law is kind of designed to, to foster cooperation and, and foster kind of exchanging of, of information and data. And then, like, I switch footing to the show and to extremism yeah. and, and, and terrorism. And it's just like, wow. Well, if
1: you don't mind <laughs> me asking, like, what kind of law to engage in? Like, the- well,
0: well, it's like, it's cybersecurity, right? So it's like,
1: okay okay
0: yeah so that you you have good relationships and there's like clearer you know I'm going to use that relatively like it's much more clear about the what you put in and the inputs and then the outcomes right it Is just it so,
1: like, I mean what about what about like the NSA surveillance programs what about surveillance capitalism I mean like what about FISA courts? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's how the thing. Much I, access, you know,
0: I don't really focus on that. I just focus on kind of that narrow band. So that might be it. That yeah. is to your point, like it might be because the, the work is so focused and the relationship is so focused that it's, it ends up being much more narrow. Then when you well,
1: start ex- interesting though, if you think about it as like a technique of control, you know mm-hmm. it's kind of like like the influx of basically over classification of government documents you know what I mean, like narrowing and restricting the parameters of you know access to information that the everyday citizen can have, so by narrowing the parameters of what you're focusing on, you know how would you know about like what was it called blue sky? I can't remember I
0: don't um, remember either but like, i, I- I mean, to reinforce the okay. point, like with, with terrorism law, it's just like going back to what you said at the beginning, which is it's so fluid. It's so ill-defined. The FBI doesn't have the same definition as DHS. DHS doesn't have the same definition as, you know, whatever. Also, you know,
1: like, I think we should point out like something really interesting too. When was ICE created and why? Any guesses?
0: Actually, that's a really good question. I don't, I don't remember. And I don't
1: know. Okay. Well, we didn't need ICE. All right. We had, you know, INS, we had border patrol, you know, actually ICE was created in 2003 as like an aftermath of like the Homeland Security Act. Right. They created this whole new like draconian law enforcement organization that didn't need to exist. And that comes to mind because I'm thinking about Evalde, you know, and the fact that like, why the hell is ICE involved in a school shooting? Why why are they there for law enforcement purposes? Uh, You know, a minority filled school where parents have to choose between like, do I go check on my child or does that risk deportation if we're undocumented? You know, because again, it's come back to like these structural configurations and organizations that regulate the parameters of citizenship, you know, by coercion and force essentially or threat thereof sorry that was a tangent but
0: no I mean like that it it just reminds me of like the run-up to one six like I I was getting dms and messages on signal like from, oh God,
1: yeah, yeah. from non,
0: from non-intel, non-police people saying like, you know, look at Shits Facebook. Gonna go down. Shit's going to yeah. go down. These folks are literally on Facebook using real names, real pictures.
1: 1776, show up like with your musket. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It, it, it's,
0: it's, it's, and it's just like.
1: Again, though, I want to like rewind a little bit because what are the two basically symbolic metaphorical, you know, images that like just came out of my mouth? Right, seventeen seventy six. Right, and and those are are like the extremely patriotic images that are invoked as like immunity, basically in a situation like this. Because how is the government go like if you use the lahu akbar, right, or tekbir, you know you're probably going to run into a shitload more trouble than if you're saying seventeen seventy six and muskets and go patriots, right? Why? Because, again, you've got this foundational mythology and, and, like, ideological sort of, you know, expectation of who conforms to what. And then, by extension, you know, what political violence is legitimate and, and who is entitled to participation in, in what way, you know? I mean, sure. I, I re- really believe that this is an underlying paradigmatic assumption that is rarely, if ever, examined when we talk about the category of terrorism.
0: Could we do a thought exercise? I'm interested in if if race is the issue or is ideology okay, okay, the okay. issue.
1: Ali Alexander was one of the organizers of January 6th, and we can't forget that we deal with a group like the Proud Boys, right? Again, I want to just back to the era of Nixon and Lee Atwater, and basically the laundering of overt racism into euphemisms, right? So you've got, like, the tokens in the Proud Boys, a proudly, quote-unquote, Western chauvinist organization, which is thinly veiled code for white Christian civilization that will take the tokens when they're useful. And then what happens? There's a split and a messy, messy divorce on Telegram. And all of a sudden there's the Proud Boys channel where they tell you how they really feel, right? There's that aspect. But the Bin Laden instance, I think is really interesting because I got into a huge flame war with like the blue QAnon people on Twitter over this. So uh, Osama Bin Laden, obviously from a Saudi family, that's huge has a lot of relatives, right? Apparently he has a niece that's really, really MAGA and basically like the, the blue QAnon equivalent, right? Like everything is a conspiracy, like from the democratic perspective. And I, sorry, Libs, but that exists and you're going to have to deal with it. And you're making the situation worse also, you know, like You can criticize Joe Biden. Like, he's not a deity. Stop reflecting the Trump god emperor bullshit. It's not productive. Moving on. In any case, so bin Laden has this niece, very, very MAGA, openly MAGA, disavows bin Laden, you know. And all of these prominent quote-unquote left accounts after January 6th, we're talking about how she is part of, like, a, a secret plot with the Republicans, you know to basically like involved in terrorism because she's related to Bin Laden. So yeah, I think there's a racial element absolutely because she was subject to far more suspicion, right? Even when she was like blasting, like I love Trump left, right and sideways, right? Nothing could divorce her from that taint of association. But I don't think it's fair to boil that down exclusively to like a race issue because of the infamy of that relative, right? But I would say, you know, you've always had patsies in these organizations, you know, like throughout time, like, so Chuck Leake from Twitter, right? He can tell you about how when he was a neo-Nazi skinhead, there were, you know, white passing like biracial neo-Nazi skinheads that got outed anytime you're on Telegram, like it's notorious, everybody's like outing everyone else for not being pure enough, you know, There are very often, I don't, like, willing token feels so gross to say, but, you know, it. the fact of the matter is when the Proud Boys refer to Western chauvinism, they are talking about white Christian civilization in the same way that Lee Atwater was laundering the N-word for Richard Nixon in terms of urban concerns. You know, and the fact of the matter is that is an outgrowth of the civil rights movement. Like I get blowback from people on the left when I talk about infiltration of the police and infiltration of the military, because they're like, these are fundamentally racist institutions. Yes, they grew out of slave patrols, right? The, the policing institutions, law enforcement. Absolutely. However, when we don't acknowledge the fact that what happened during civil rights was a fundamental shift in the consequences of public overt racism, right? That entailed an entirely new way of operating according to an outward facing civil discourse. You know what I mean? That changes the entire organizational strategy that someone has. So, of course, you're going to have people like reaching out for Tario and laundering, you know, white supremacy in Christian, you know, Christian nations, whatever the hell that even means, right, under Western chauvinism. When, like, let's be real, if you have any sense of geopolitical history, you know, what the hell is Western civilization? You couldn't have the Renaissance without Arabs and, you know, preservation of Greek philosophy in Arabic, right? So, I mean, those stupid Samuel Huntington categories don't make sense either, but I will stop that rant before I keep going. Isn't it historical? drives me crazy.
0: No, I mean, I just find it interesting that, like it's that tension with enforcement between ideology and race like you i i i think like the stereotype or the expectation is that somebody who is not white or not presenting as white would be more subject to arrest and legal scrutiny than somebody who is white but well, then i
1: mean you know then is it isn't it a fair question to ask like how did they get tario to roll so fast And why him? I mean, I think it's because he's an idiot, personally, but, like, if you're going to bring up those categories, you could ask that about him. I mean, and certainly there are those within those organizations that will sell out their token figurehead so fucking fast. The minute that it's convenient, you know?
0: Yeah. No, 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 that's so interesting. Like, I just, like, there's some, just so much complexity to this, and it's just, like, it just kind of boggles my mind. Like, I want to, I really just... Absolutely. I just want to kind of think about it in very clean neat categories and then we well, start
1: to you and teach me how <laughs> Actually, you know one more thing and, and then I'll really try to shut up but you know like this isn't a new phenomenon either so I can point back to Metzger right I have I have this huge video archive because I'm a masochist I guess of like Metzger speeches and stuff for the book that I'm working on but like Metzger was one of the pioneers of basically the enemy of my enemy here, right? Right, in racial terms. And I have this video of him with the new Black Panther Party and he was giving a keynote speech for them, right? And like, you know, he, he donated to Farrakhan and like spoke at a Nation of Islam gathering too, but like in this new Black, not, not like the OG Black Panther, right? Like the new Black Panther Party. So we obviously realize that there's an ideological distinction as well as a genealog- genealogical distinction between the two groups that I want to make very clear. But so in this, this you know, gathering, Tom Metzger is speaking as like an overt white supremacist that's genocidal as fuck, right? In a keynote to Black people, Right. And there's this surreal, awkward moment where the guy that invites him, somebody in the audience addresses the, you know, the elephant in the room, like when it comes to the race war, what's going to go down? And they just start laughing and they're like, we'll worry about it then. But until then, like we're down basically because we're like working against the state together, right? To separate from one another. And Metzger had, you know, he had infiltrators that were black that were black separatists. Right. And I, I like, I, God, that word just feels so gross because it doesn't, you know, acknowledge, I I think in fair complexity, basically the the structural components of like how deeply rooted the, you know, phenomenon of of racism in this country is, but yeah. So Mesker drew on like radical black separatists to spy for him. Right. And he had neo-Nazis doing the same thing for them. And he was speaking at new at the new Black Panther Party events, right? And like, basically, and he would use that as cover for his racism and say like, I'm I don't like I don't want to kill people. I just want to live apart. You know what I mean? It's always been convenient cover. And I think one of the things that people miss when it comes to the role of race in these identitarian groups and religion and racialized religion also. Is the fact that, like, you know, even when we disagree with our heart of hearts and every ethical bone in our bodies with the like the ideological framework and, you know, the politics of an opponent, right? I think we often make the mistake of seeing them as not sophisticated strategically, you know, which is why, like, why would the Proud Boys have a brown person as their figurehead? You know, why would Metzger be working with the new Black Panther Party? well, they're not stupid. And the minute that we let ourselves slip into thinking that they are, we have no ability to gauge the strategic plan, right? And the tactical sort of approach that would explain those paradoxes, you know?
0: Interesting. So we've been talking for about two hours.
1: I'm so sorry. No, no,
0: no, it's, it's, it's good. And so that, that, Always brings us to the legendary last question. I think you, as a previous guest, you already know what that is.
1: I totally can't remember. It's okay. It's
0: I'm about to ask it. I'm
1: thinking of, like the Desus and Marrow thing where they're like, what do you want your rainbow to say? And I don't know if you know Desus and Marrow anyway. Never mind.
0: Uh, no, no, no. But- I, am, I am familiar. I, I started okay, with you that.
1: Know when Vic Minsa is on and he, he's like DJ Wackademics.
0: Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah,
1: that's what I want my naturally know be immortal technique Harlem is what my rainbow would say. But anyway, sorry. What is the question? <laughs> I'm tired. I bet you are. You've been dealing with me.
0: <laughs> it's okay. So I think the legendary question is before we leave for the night, leave me and the audience something to think about, something to chew on about how we think about terrorism and its sort of reflection into the law.
1: Okay, so wait, did you ask me about terrorism last time? And I completely forgot on the out- outro. that's a terrible joke. Last time. Because I pulled an all-nighter last night work-wise. So I'm kind of dumb right now. And that joke totally misfired. But so what I would say to everybody as like a, a thought-provoking, hopefully, you know, end point, is something that I would tell my students all the time, you know, don't use a word unless you can define it. You know, and when I talked about the same thing that I talked about with you at a conference about a month ago, it was really interesting because I got a lot of pushback from people about like a, the impossibility of like jettisoning, jettisoning terrorism as a term or a criminal category, et cetera, which I understand began thought, pro- or like thought exercise, right? And people were saying well why can't we use the word terrorism and use it against the state like to reclaim its power and my argument to them was you can never step outside the state with the category like that and for me i am uncomfortable with using this word because it has the power of a coercive government apparatus over the life and death of human beings that is not allocated you know equally And so that's what I would encourage people to think about. Are you comfortable with using a category that you can't define that is backed up by a state that can kill you for engaging in it? I'm not comfortable with using a word I can't define in that context. And you shouldn't be either.
0: Powerful words. That was Amanda Rogers. Again, you can hear her on her previous appearance talking about Tom Metzger at length. Again thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Well, thank you so much for your copious patience. And I really hope that made sense because I should have slept last night. So, but it's always a blast to be here. So
0: thank you so much.